Hi, everybody. Welcome to Shasai Podcast, conversations between scholars from around the world who study childhood, youth, and related institutions historically. As an official production of the Society for the History of Children and Youth, you can subscribe to these shows through iTunes or Google Play. Written and visual materials associated with each episode are available at our website, shcy.org. Enjoy. Welcome to the Society for the History of Children and Youth podcast. My name is Zoella Diamico, and I'm an Associate Professor of English and Coordinator of the Women's and Gender Studies Program at the University of the Incarnate Word in San Antonio, Texas. And I'm also a lover and scholar of girl series fiction and United States girl series fiction in particular. So I am so excited to be here with Dr. Emily Hamilton Honey and Dr. Susan Ingalls Lewis to talk about their fabulous book. Girls to the Rescue, Young Heroines in American Series Fiction of World War One. I. I waited years for their book to come out, so I just cannot wait to talk with, to talk to them and discuss this book uh, with them and for you to hear about it today. It is, it is expansive, it is smart, and it really covers a moment in girls series fiction that no one talks about. And so I, I've just you were just in for such a treat today. Dr. Emily Hamilton Honey is an associate professor of English and humanities, and she's co-chief diversity officer at SUNY Canton. She's co-editor with Dr. Jennifer McFarland Harris of 19th Century American Women Writers and Theologies of the Afterlife, A Step Closer to Heaven, which was published with Rutledge in 2021. She's a co-author of the book we're speaking about today with Dr. Susan Ingalls Lewis of Girls to the Rescue, which was published with McFarland in 2020. She's also author of another great book, Turning the Pages of American Girlhood, The Evolution of Girls Series Fiction, 1865 to 1930, which was also published with McFarland and is one of my favorite academic books of all time. It's published in 2013. So after you hear about this podcast, go and check that book out. She has also published articles on the history of Smith College, Glee and Fandom, the Ruth Fielding, the Ruth Fielding series, Librarians and Girls Series Fiction, and Louisa May Alcott. And we also have with us Dr. Susan Ingalls Lewis, who is a professor emerita in the Department of History, SUNY New Paltz, and she specializes in American women's history, the progressive era, and New York history. She lives in Rosendale, New York, but she's currently wintering in sunny Florida. <laughs> so I want to talk a little bit about your background. So as everyone just heard, you come from really different interdisciplinary places and different levels of your careers, too. Can you speak to how this informed your writing process and also just your collaboration in general? Okay, I'm going to jump in because I actually hadn't put in the biography that I sent in that I have an even more diverse background. So I'm the, uh, my, I wrote with my husband an art appreciation textbook called The Power of Art that's in its fourth edition. And I wrote, I co-edited a book about suffrage. And so I had a wide variety of interests 
but they all had to do with history, art history or history. So I don't have any background at all in literary analysis or YA fiction or, you know, not a single English class in graduate school. So Emily and I came from very, very different worlds. And also when we left, when we met, I was an associate professor and, you know, with tenure and she was a grad student soon to be looking for a job. So as you said, Luella, we're at very different points of our career, but I think that that helped. Hopefully I was able to assist Emily in finding some funding with a uh, leave that we had never even heard about because we both teach for State University of New York schools. And it wasn't just that we came from different fields. It's also that we really have different strengths, I think. Emily must be the most meticulous person who I have ever worked with, whereas I'm much more like, oh, we could do this. We could do this. We could think of this. We could think of that. So it was a, a tremendous balance, and I've got to say that in our collaboration, I don't think we ever had one single argument, not didn't, one. We didn't. Which is really true. different from my collaboration with my husband, where we argued every day. <laughs> I have to say that uh, Emily and I are planning a collaborative project coming up, and you kind of set the bar high, Susan. <laughs> I, I, I not expecting this. So just going into this, Emily, I am no Susan. Go on. <laughs> you um, can continue to be the, the wonderful Emily. <laughs> well, and I'll also say, so Susan and I met originally uh, at a, I believe it was a Mid-Atlantic Popular Culture Association conference in 2009. Uh, and as Susan said, I was a, a grad student at that time. I still had a year left to go. Um, and Susan was presenting uh, on a panel about World War I series fiction, which of course I was interested in. Uh, and so, I, you know, I went to the panel, I asked a question during the Q&A, which Susan answered very graciously. And then I stayed behind afterwards to talk to her. And I think we wound up talking for like an hour. <laughs> And, uh, and so we kept in touch. Um, as, I, as I finished grad school, uh, I was on the market for several years. I lived in Pennsylvania for a couple of those. And um, of course, I got a job in New York, uh, but we were still not geographically close. Uh, Canton, where, where my university is, and uh, New Paltz are about five or so hours apart. Um, and we were both extremely busy people. We both had high teaching loads and lots of service. Um, and we ended up doing all of this, you know, on winter and summer breaks. And so it took us seven years to get this book together. Um, you know, even, even just negotiating all of the time challenges was, was really uh, difficult. So. But it, it feels like a book that took seven years too, and also that took all of your expertise. I mean, when you were talking about your experience with art history, Susan, like it, it feels like a book with someone who has experience in art history. If you go through here, you'll see all of these beautiful illustrations that are mm -hmm. talked about it. And they're such expansive 
discussions and the research in here, I mean, it feels like a book that doesn't, you know, doesn't feel like a, a summer crunch book, right? It, it makes sense to me that this is something that was collaborative, that uses both of your varied expertise. Um, I mean, it it is that, that type of level of book. Um, so I would like to know about about your inspiration individually that led you to this idea of of girls um, of, of girl series books in general um, and in World War One books. So Emily, maybe you should start by talking about why you're inspired to write about girls series books at all. <laughs> Oh my gosh. Um, so I have been in love with girl series since I was a girl, since I was a teenager. Um, and collecting old series was also something that I started as a teenager. Uh, I found my first Beverly Gray book at a Boy Scout book sale uh, in my hometown and just was fascinated. And I started digging around all the used bookstores and all the antique stores, you know, trying to put together sets and, and read all of these old series. Um, and, and I want Susan to tell the story of how she got into World War I series fiction in particular, but uh, I, I will say that the World War I books are fascinating and have always been fascinating to me. Um, precisely because they are so different from all the rest. And I know we're going to talk about that a little more. It was yeah. so cool. I just want to jump in and say it was so cool to actually see books from both of your personal collections in here, right? You could tell that this was a passion project in this way when you're, you're flipping through the pages and it says, right, from Emily Hamilton, honey, or from Susan Ingalls Lewis personal collection, right? This felt like a passion project that... <laughs> Susan, yeah. what, um, what was your inspiration? So I loved girl series books, but I didn't have to buy any. My family never threw anything out. So I had an entire set of Patty books that had either belonged to my mother or grandmother or both. You know, it might have been my grandmother read them and then my mother read them and then I read them. And, you know, an almost complete set of Louisa May Alcott, but just... And a bunch of obscure, obscure <laughs> series books when I was a teenager. And then I became a women's historian and I was interested in working women and particularly business women. So I had a whole specialization in 19th century business women. When I was done with that project, at least done with my first book, which was about Business women in mid 19th century Albany. And let me say, the book is called Unexceptional Women because these women were not exceptional. There were tons of small business women in the 19th century, even though you would think they couldn't possibly exist. But when I was done with that book, I realized that I wanted to do something with stories mm. and I wanted to do something with a plot. And I wanted to do something that I could actually have the sources in my hands and read them at night and not have to go to a library with limited hours or in my case a library that was in Massachusetts four hours away which is where I did most of the research for my first book so I got this idea and I'd been researching at the SUNY Albany Library and Special Collections looking at city directories and there's a librarian there 
whose name is David Mitchell and is wonderful. And I could see that they had a collection he had built about girls' series books. He said lots of places had collections of boys' series books, but he wanted to have girls' series. And so that seemed handy. And I was offended by the way that other women's historians would refer to girls' books from Louisa May Alcott on, the way that they dismissed them and acted like little women had no feminism in it. It just annoyed me. So I thought, oh, I'll write a book and it will go from little women to Nancy Drew and what's in between. But uh, the librarian pointed out to me, perhaps that was too big. <laughs> perhaps that was a little bit ambitious, you know, for my second project. And maybe I should just do World War One. And they had a number of books. And I started off with the first one, which was called uh, Somewhere in America, no, Somewhere in Belgium, Marieke de Bruyne. And I just loved this book immediately. So I went to this conference and met Emily. And it turned out she had already written the book that I had been planning to write. So that was a relief. <laughs> and I was able to take that off the table. And then I could ask, uh, you know, Emily got, and I got thinking that there still was a book. There was another book about World War I. Because as Emily just said, World War I is really exceptional. And she's going to explain why. <laughs> um, so I think... Uh, there's lots of things that grab me about these books in particular, but I think um, the thing that grabbed both of us was how active all of these heroines are. Um, they have extraordinary amounts of agency. Um, the heroines are incredibly empowered. Um, and in ways that they aren't, uh, either in the, the books that come before uh, so Little Women and Elsie Dinsmore and the like, but then also the books that come after, right? Nancy Drew and all of her um, contemporaries. And so it felt really important to us to think about the kind of feminism we were seeing in these World War I series in particular, and why these heroines felt so much more um, vibrant and empowered than lots of other series heroines. The other thing that Emily already knew that I found out when I started working with her was that World War I is the only war that's extensively covered in girls' series. After World War I, the publishers made the decision not to make war-based stories because you couldn't sell them when the war was over. So there's no similarity for other wars the U.S. was involved in in girls' series. They're sort of timeless, but these books are extremely timely from the ones that start when the U.S. hasn't entered to the ones where the U.S., um, and in a bunch of them, the U.S. actually enters the war during the book, and some of them, the U.S., uh, you know, the, wins the war during the book, so they're very, very historical and timely in a way that other books aren't. And I'm actually going to, uh, for those of you watching, um, I'm going to share my screen. And if you would, uh, Emily, I'm going to have you 
um, go ahead and describe the cover of your book for for us. Um, so that way, oh, hold on, <laughs> go back and back the slide. So that way we can get an idea of some of the activity that you are both discussing and have been discussing that is unique to the series fiction of World War One. And I do think that the illustrations that you have throughout here uh, really capture this, right? That's what that's always for me what is exciting looking at the dust jacket dust dust jackets and seeing what's inside the books and also what's inside your book too. Yeah, so this cover, I love the story about this cover. Uh so the illustration um it actually comes from the dust jacket of the khaki girls at Windsor Barracks. And we were going to include it just as a regular illustration in the book. Uh, and then McFarlane came back to us and said, you know, we love this beautiful color dust jacket that you sent. We want to use it for the cover. Um, and they came up with this beautiful, beautiful cover. So um, in the illustration, uh, you have the girl in the front uh, who is Joan Mason, who's one of the two khaki girls. Right. And she's walking towards you and she's looking out of the frame and sort of striding towards you in her uniform. Um, and then you have her two counterparts in the background who are, you know, cleaning and servicing their ambulance uh, and and, uh, you know, taking care of this machinery that they have to use on a daily basis. Um, and the whole thing just feels so vibrant to me. Right. You've got these two women caring for the ambulance. You've got Joan striding towards you. There's the plane flying over in the background and the whole thing has such a wonderful feeling of purpose to it uh, that feels really appropriate for the book as a whole. Well, and as you can see, she's wearing a uniform, a uniform with a tie. And, and uh, women who were involved in World War I actually did wear uniforms. And they did drive ambulances, and they did service them. But I, I'm just going to tell a little story about Joan from the book, which is uh, very early on in the story, uh, she meets another woman who turns out to be her chum. And she says, and she's a society girl. But by the way, in every single book, they re reject being society girls. That is a common, common thread. Anyway, she says... Uh, I'm a motor fiend and proud of it. I wish I'd been born a boy. My, my dream is to go to France and drive an ambulance there. <coughs> and then her father wants to discourage her. So he tells her this story of a girl who volunteered, went to France, was in an accident, uh, ended up blind to make her see that this is a very bad idea. And she says, well, she did her part. She played her, she, she, she chose that role and she played it and that hasn't discouraged me at all. So speaking of doing, doing their parts, I wanted you, Susan, to also talk about the Campfire Girls a little bit. Um, and... And this illustration, which is another just one of my favorites that I picked out, um, that has another very active girl. But from what I remember, right, this is an illustration that is here, right, in the U.S. Yes. Um, and right, this is 
I mean, it looks like it would be abroad, right? But it's here in the U.S. and we have, well, I'm hoping you can describe it, Susan, and tell us a little bit about it. Sure. So this is the Campfire Girls Do Their Bit, right? Which was the <laughs> way people talked in World War One about doing their bit. <laughs> and this is Sawa. That's her campfire name. And um, the truth is I've forgotten what her actual name is, something like Mildred, probably. Uh, so she is here rescuing a young man who is a pilot uh, in the Army who has, for some reason, crashed his plane into a swamp. And she doesn't know who he is. Later, it turns out he was in love with her all the time, and he saw her once on a train, but she doesn't know that. And she just goes in and rescues him and saves his life. And what I, what I noticed in many of these books was this was, not, this was not shown as some kind of female compassion, something that was soft or motherly or sisterly. Uh, it's much more ambitious and wanting to do something. In the first chapter of this particular book, Sawa rants for an entire page about how girls aren't allowed to do enough in World War I and how frustrated she is. So here at the end of the book, she actually manages to do this heroic deed, which had been her dream all along. It's, I love this picture because it looks like it could go either way out of context. I mean, it looks to me like she, right, we know, right, from the context that you've described and from here, I think she's saving him. But it also looks very much like she could be, like, killing him, right? It is this very <laughs> powerful picture, right? That is very evocative, right, of showing this woman's power, right, that she really does have the power of life over him, right? Um, right. For some reason, right? Her her hand is up here, sort mm -hmm. of either way. Um, and I I don't know if our listeners are used to hearing the word girl in the way that we've been talking about it. And as we're looking at these illustrations, these don't look like I think young girls, right? These look like women in these illustrations. So I wanted to ask. Um, both Emily and Susan about how you're defining the term girl. I, well, I think we'll start with that. How, how do you define the term girl in the, the girl series books from this time period, especially given these two pictures and, and the rest of the books? So, Susan, do you want to talk yeah, about sure, the sure. I just was, first? Yeah, I... Generally, we took our cue from the books themselves and from this time period. And in this time period, contemporaries referred to girls who might be in their 20s or even 30s, especially if they weren't married. So a newspaper article might say, Salvation Army girls under fire. And you look and you see the Salvation Army girls have already graduated from college and done a number of other things first. So that's different. However, we did have some girls who were as young as 14, and then others in Emily's series who were as old as their 30s. It was a challenge for us, and we spent some time thinking about this and considering 
the pros and cons of how the definition worked. But this was the kind of definition that was very common in newspapers at the period. And uh, I also should say that I am now old enough. This was another benefit of our working together because Emily is so much younger than I am that we were able to know different things and have different vocabulary. But when I was growing up, women were always girls. So the girls would go powder their noses. You know, if you saw a movie, <laughs> the girls would go powder their noses. And then uh, feminists rejected being called girls and everybody was a woman, right? Even a 10 year old, she was a young woman. And then more recently, there's been an attempt, I think, to save the term girls and to resurrect it as a girl power term as opposed to a demeaning term. And then Emily's going to say something about boys. <laughs> I think it's, it's sort of interesting to have the scope, right, of a historian, right, to, to have us go from, right, what it, what it was, right, in, in all of these different, different time frames. And I am interested, Emily, in how you two did reclaim this as a term of empowerment, right? And I think this is this idea of boys, right? That it is, can you speak to that a little? Yeah, so one of the things that was really interesting in the books themselves that we found um, was that, you know, the grown women were often girls, but the grown men were often boys, right? So there's a lot of affectionate referral to our boys or to Uncle Sam's boys, um, you know, as a, as a, a way of saying, like, these are our American soldiers. And then when you have those soldiers encountering um, the Salvation Army workers or the women ambulance drivers or the Red Cross nurses, they call them our girls, right? Our American girls. And so in some ways it becomes almost a, a term of acknowledgement, a term of equality, right? In the sense that you're our boys and you know uh, we're your girls and we're all over here working together. Um, and that was really interesting because it was something that did recur throughout the books and really seemed to um, kind of reject any sort of gender hierarchy, right? It was about, you know, we're in this mess together, we're going to work together, we're going to get through it, and we're here for each other. So we shouldn't automatically get our wrinkles up the moment that we hear girls, right? <laughs> <laughs> so... My next question, I think, does have to, to do with the idea of girls again and how much they were able to do um, and the way that you set up your book. So I love that you have, is, I thought it was really intriguing, uh, intriguing um, chapters, like girls who stay at home, girls who nurse and do relief work, girls who drive and fly, my personal favorite, uncovering spies and saboteurs, Girls who rescue men and girls who fight. Oh, and I missed chapter one, preparedness. Um, so, how? Why did you decide on these chapters? How did you? How did you come to these? Um, yes, tell us. So, I think that this probably was inspired by me because I really didn't want to do a book that was just about this series, this series, this series, and this series. That would be to me a more you know, YA literature approach, and a lot of collections have 
just, you know, articles about specific series or even specific books in series. And what I was really interested in, and Emily was interested in too, obviously, was making some connections between the series and also with what women actually did. So every chapter starts with a historical section talking about what women did and how these books relate to either reality or fantasy, because the girl series books include many volumes about things that girls really did, like running a hostess house or nursing, and then things that certainly American girls didn't do. I did find a few uh, girls in France and Belgium who helped rescue soldiers and who sabotaged but <clears throat> and were arrested, but those were the exceptions. So, and as the books go on, they do have girls doing things that they nobody ever did. You know, girls did not fly airplanes and shoot people down. They just, I mean, I think there were girls at this time, women at this time who, who flew airplanes, but not in the war. And there, as far as I know, I don't know, actually there were a few girls, there were some they were Russian girls, and I think there might have been an Austrian girl who actually fought with weapons. Mm -hmm. But that was really, really rare. And certainly American girls didn't do that. They gave out donuts. <laughs> so it was an interesting comparison between the reality and the fantasy. But at the same time, we thought that girls in World War I were doing much more than we had ever heard of. Because you know, I never heard a single thing about what they did. So this leads me to my next question, which is about inspiration. Let's say that you are having to tell someone that they have to choose one book that they should read or one series book um, from Girls to the Rescue. What, do, what would you tell them to choose, right? Uh, what is the best sort of feminist book? What is the best book representative of World War One? Do you think you can choose whichever whichever path that you want to take it from? Take it. Um, what what should we read? You should. I know you chose different books to read for the entire uh, for the entire Girls to the Rescue book, so you can each choose one. Emily, we'll start with you. So I I would say if you want to just get a flavor um, of the kind of feminism that is in these World War One series in particular. Uh, read the khaki girls. <laughs> it's a short series. Um, they are very outspoken about their feminism. They're very daring, uh, you know, very motivated. <laughs> um, and and my personal favorite just as a as a heroine is really Ruth Fielding. Um, she isn't she isn't the loudest of them, nor the most daring. Uh, but I love how her entire series really encapsulates this historical period. Um, she goes to college, she leaves college to join the war effort, um, and over the course of the war does lots of different things to support the war effort. Uh, and then she goes home and becomes the head of a movie studio. She's already involved in motion pictures before the war starts. Uh, and becomes this very powerful uh, filmmaking figure, which of course, you know, reflects Mary Pickford and Marion Davies and all of these 
uh, 20s women who were in the Hollywood system. Um, and so part of the reason I think I love Ruth so much is she has so much to say about um, how this period in particular really opened a lot of opportunities for women. You, you're, I love that you're both so even-handed and throughout throughout the book it's like this um, that you really show I think the value and you give honor to the characters who are doing work at home right which you know like like Ruth Fielding but then also right these characters right are also doing amazing things abroad as well they seem to be able to do everything all at once yeah I refer to these these heroines is omnicompetent yes and they, they make just, me feel insufficient in every way of course <laughs> when you were 14 could you be running an inn under german occupation while you carried messages across enemy lines dug a dug a tunnel between your basement and the you know the the barn so that you could hide uh british soldiers in occupied belgium i don't think so and make a perfect omelet yes that's the other part <laughs> i don't even think i can make the perfect omelet now much less the rest of it yeah. saving the world at the same time <laughs> so that particular book is called um somewhere marican de brune somewhere in belgium and that's one of my favorites and the whole somewhere series i love What's really interesting about the Somewhere series is in the last book, the heroine in Canada is extremely depressed. And I think it reflects the end of the war and mm. sort of, and, and the war actually ends in that book. But I think that there's a feeling already that the war hasn't exactly turned out the way that they wanted or expected. So there's a variety in the books, but my other favorite heroine is um lucy gordon and the first book is called captain lucy and lieutenant bob and these books are divided between a brother a sister and a brother so she's the heroine but you also see a lot through his eyes and most of her purpose in this book is actually to help her family although she is the person who ends up riding in a um in a fighter plane and shooting at a German plane. So, yeah. And she's about 15 at the time. Of course, right? Able to do it all at 15. Yes. Totally even-handed <laughs> like I was at 15. <laughs> it's, it's really interesting how transnational the books are too, right? That they take place, right? right? Some on American soil, but they really take place everywhere, but they also have characters from everywhere. I noticed that as well, right? That they really honor, right? That this is a, a, an allied war. Um, so that was sort of fascinating as I was going through there. Um, I have to answer, I felt, or ask sort of the, the question that is the elephant in the room, and that is about how these books intersect with Nancy Drew. Because um, <laughs> when we think of the advent of girls series fiction, we automatically go to, well, it began with Nancy Drew, but Nancy Drew didn't start until like 1930. Um, and these are all before then. And as it, it sounds like these girls were doing a few things that maybe Nancy could do. So so I'd like to hear about how you think these books intersect with the Nancy Drew series um, and maybe even about how they intersect with Nancy's brand of feminism. Yeah, I, I actually have a whole rant 
about Nancy Drew. <laughs> I have several rants, and that's one of them because <laughs> Nancy Drew, she's very privileged and empowered, right? And she does have her little car, and she does solve mysteries. But she, she's not nearly, nearly as active, as courageous, as successful, or as omnicompetent. She's somewhat omnicompetent, but she's omnicompetent in a peace setting. Mm -hmm. And these girls are omnicompetent in a war setting. So mm -hmm. Nancy doesn't have to go under fire. She's not going to be injured by a bomb. <laughs> there are all sorts of things where it seems that she's okay. I have nothing against Nancy Drew. When I was growing up, I loved Nancy Drew. But Nancy Drew spends a lot of her time trying to save people from old money against people from new money. And there are a lot of problems in Nancy with the classism, you know, huge problems, I think, which people don't seem to notice. But uh, so what would you say, Emily, about the comparison with Nancy? Well, I, I do think, I think you're right. I think one of the big differences is that Nancy is operating um, in a, in a peace situation, right? She's not thrown into the middle of a war um, and she's not uh, sort of forced to um, deal with, you know, bombs and, um, you know, international spy rings. And although I think there's one of the later ones uh, from the 80s where she does deal with some international stuff. But yeah, I think, well, and I think the other thing is that Nancy's purpose is different, right? She, when she originally appears in the 1930s, a lot of what her mysteries do is alleviate people's worries about the depression. Um, she's recovering income. She's recovering property. She's making sure that, you know, people who would otherwise be in really uh, distressed economic circumstances aren't in those circumstances, right? And for people who are living through the depression, I'm sure that was incredibly reassuring. Um, uh, but, you know, but Nancy is also, I think, um, She's to a certain degree protected in a way that these girls during World War I are not, right? She always has her father kind of watching her back. She always has Chief McGinnis or Ned Nickerson or George and Bess watching her back and sort of being her backup. Um, and for a lot of these girls, there's no backup, right? They are it. They are the only ones um, who, who have to deal with the disasters and the dangers. Um, and there's, there's no one else to call a lot of the time. And I think that makes a difference in the tone of the books as well. Well, it's also true that Nancy maybe gets a certain local reputation. But these girls, they, they, they get metal from the King of Italy and then another one, you know, written up in the newspaper uh, or, you know, called to Washington by President Wilson. There's no limit. They were in the Croix de Guerre. You know, there's no limit to the amount of fame and that they win. Not fortune. It's nothing. There's no money involved, right? It's all about fame. It's all about being a heroine, really. 
Yeah, I think that Nancy's ahistoricism, right, is what makes her someone who we sort of know and remember today. And it's really interesting that in the World War One series, I think that in many ways we've lost these girls' stories because they were, you know, tied to their particular moment in time, right? Right. So mm -hmm. we, we don't have those stories anymore. And I did want to make sure that I had asked you both um, before before we conclude, if you have, um, you could just summarize for our audience what you would say would be like the contribution of your work. I think that we've sort of covered this, but I want to make sure that, that our audience gets this. If you were to say, right, this is why you should read Girls to the Rescue. Well, I think that our book covers a whole area that hasn't been covered either historically or in terms of literature. But even more than a good read, which I actually think it is, it's it is. a really great reference book. So we have three appendixes and one of them is just every series, every girl series in which books are about World War I. And then the second one is about all the authors and everything we could find out about them. And the third one summarizes the plots of every book that we read, which is about 50. So anyone who wants to pick up this research really would have a wonderful um, reference work in just the back of the book. I mean, that is, I just want to echo that this is a, an amazing resource, the appendix, <laughs> the, the appendices, the um, just the lists, and also the, the summaries of them are just uh, amazing. Um, what do you think remains unknown or what future research in this area do you think is needed? Oh my gosh, there's so much. Um, so I, when Susan and I came into this, I think we knew that we wanted to write a book that was just going to be a baseline, right? That was going to give people a place to start uh, because we knew that there hadn't really been a book about these particular series before. Um, but one of the results of that is that we touched on a lot of topics over the course of the book that we couldn't, we didn't have the space to really examine in any detail. Um, so one of the big ones that really stands out to me is there's really interesting and dare I say complicated um, instances of racism and xenophobia in these books. Um, you know, there's, there's lots of prejudices against Germans, which you would expect, but there's also a lot of prejudice against Chinese characters, um, which I'm sure is a result of um, the Chinese Exclusion Act and the various immigration restrictions that were passed in the 19-teens. Um, and, you know, that's something that could use a lot more unpacking examination that we just, you know, we mention it, we have paragraphs about it here and there, um, but didn't have time to really examine in any extensive way. Um, one of the other things that really interested me that we didn't get to spend a lot of time on um, in the home front section that you talked about, Luella, there's some really interesting material about um, uh, grief 
and about uh, injury, right? And, and what the sort of lack of communication between Europe and the US meant for families um, in terms of you know, not necessarily knowing if their loved one was alive or dead, um, not necessarily knowing if they were gonna make it through an injury. Um, and there's a ton of that and we spent maybe half a chapter on it. <laughs> You know, so there's there's so many areas I think that deserve um, additional study and more study um, that could be really beneficial for talking about these books. Yeah, and in terms of girls' studies, uh, there could be a whole book about what girls actually did in World War One. We just scratched the surface. When I was doing this for a class, we found a picture. The students' favorite picture was of girls collecting peach pits for gas masks and uh, it, the things that they, you know, learning how to cook with corn instead of wheat and trying new recipes, making sure that none of the food in the household was wasted, having victory gardens. These are all things that girls, real girls were actually very, very active in. Yeah, and just knowing too, right, that organizations like the Campfire Girls, right, yeah. were in existence right? and, you know, had all of these young people who were making contributions to a war effort that we rarely talk about, right? Right. And there's not just historical documents, but all of these books and entire industry that is built up around all of this literature. I mean, it's just an amazing, I think, compilation and history that you've documented here. Um, so thank you so much for this work. I'm excited. As I was reading through it, I kept thinking of new ideas, right? New avenues to approach. And I imagine for everyone listening that they will have the same experience, that they will have just zings of ideas, right? Where, oh, I, I wish that I could compare it to this, or I wish I'd known about this. So I do think that there's so much more research to be done. Um, and I'm excited for our listeners to read and uh, learn more about young heroines in American series fiction of World War One. So thank you so much, Emily and Susan, and thank you to our audience today. We are grateful that you took time to listen to our podcast and we hope you go and get the book. Hi everybody. Welcome to Shasai Podcast. Conversations between scholars from around the world who study childhood, youth, and related institutions historically. As an official production of the Society for the History of Children and Youth, you can subscribe to these shows through iTunes or Google Play. Written and visual materials associated with each episode are available at our website, shcy.org. Enjoy.